Welcome to Going Underground, a podcast by yourcalling.co.uk. My name is Graham Smith, Editor-in-Chief of Your Calling, and today I'm joined by a special guest presenter. Miles Salter is a York-based writer and poet and frequent contributor. Here's Miles to tell us more about this episode's guest. In this episode, we talk to author John Higgs about his new book, Love and Let Die. The book compares and contrasts two British institutions, the global franchise that is James Bond and the equally huge brand that began as four unassuming lads in Liverpool, The Beatles. The first James Bond film, Dr No, and the first Beatles single, Love Me Do, were both launched on the 5th of October 1962. Most people knew little about them then, but by the end of the 60s, their place in popular culture was unassailable. 60 years later, both brands remain huge. Love and Let Die is John Higgs' 12th book, and his other writing has covered a diverse range of subjects, including Timothy Leary, the KLF, and William Blake. And it's great to welcome John to the podcast. John, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you, Miles. So there's never been a book quite like this, and you seem to have struck gold with this angle. As soon as I heard about this book, my my uh, antennae was uh, was pricking up, as it were. Was it a eureka moment for you when you decided to put the Beatles and, and Bond together? Yeah, it, abso- it absolutely was. I could just see the whole thing. When the moment, obviously, the excuse is that they are twins. They are, you know, born on the same day. Um, uh, but the moment you put them sort of next to each other, you know, we think we know everything about the Beatles. We think we know everything about Bond. But just, just when you put them in the context of each other, just all this stuff just sort of starts pouring out of them about, you know, about class, about, you know, ideas about masculinity, about Britain, about all, all these things. And it's just too tempting to sort of uh, to, to, to ignore. And when I first had the idea, I thought, I can't tell people this because they might go, John, that's just two completely different things. That's not that's not a book. You're just writing about two completely different things. But it was quite a relief that when it sort of appeared, it's like everyone got it. It made it made sense to people. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've really, really enjoyed it. And uh, there are some really interesting parallels. You're kind of doing a sort of compare and contrast between these two things, which in some ways are similar and in some ways are different. Let's start with Ian Fleming. He was from a very wealthy English family. His father died in World War I and the obituary was written by Winston Churchill. Um, Ian doesn't always come across as a particularly nice person. And you say in the book that he put his own snobbish opinions onto the character of Bond. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he'd have seen it in those terms. He would have thought he was putting his 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 great perspective. You know, his um, he was basically Bond was very much a fantasy the uh, the life he wished to live. The, the fact that he started to write the Bond novels just as he was about to get married, you know, is very telling. You know, he would say he he did it to uh, take his mind from the hideous spectre of matrimony. He was not um, what we now call an emotionally mature man. You know, the the, the thought of of uh, giving up his life to be to lose his individuality to become part of a couple to be a part of something larger he was kind of horrified by it it just it just wouldn't allow him to sort of do whatever he liked whatever he sort of liked so he sort of poured everything he wanted to be into into this into this character he took you know elements of his of his war record but he made them far more heroic um fleming 
um, was very much behind a desk. He was, uh, they called him a chocolate sailor during the, uh, the war. He was in the, the, um, the Naval Intelligence Department, but he wasn't out there risking his life. He was sending people off to risk their life. So his it much prefer the heroic nature of, of that person at the front. So he sort of created this person and he was much um, help. You know, Fleming's health was starting to go. He was smoking, he was drinking lots. So he just put all these onto Bond who could drink as much as he liked and smoked as much as he liked and womanize as much as he liked. And just, it was just the life he wanted. You know, it was his fantasy of, of what a man should be. For him, it was all, it was all unarguable, but for everyone else, it's a weird mix between the sort of positive and the negative aspects of, of masculinity that makes Bond such an interesting and, and compelling character. It's like you can't quite unpick the bad bits without losing the good bit. Well, I'm, all, I'm already going off piece with this question, but um, it just struck me while you were saying that. You know, there's a lot of talk uh, at the moment about masculinity and the, and the healthy and the unhealthy aspects of masculinity. So did... Did do you think Fleming? Do you think Fleming made things worse by creating this kind of incredibly masculine uh, character? I think in the long run, no. In fact, if I think in the long run, um, James Bond is a is a positive thing. He is this um, whole thing about the character. Is he's he's this sort of fantasy of, of what men want to be. The the Bond films, they go, you you could be like James Bond. Do you want to be like James Bond in a way that say. You know, no one fantasies about fantasizes about being Jason Bourne, for instance, or even even like a. I really love Indiana Jones. I think that's a terrific masculine icon, but it's not the same as James Bond. It's it's not sort of it's not the archetype of of what a man you know fantasizes about, and it's not what a man should be, you know, or what a man needs to be. It's what they sort of dream of being, um, and you can see that change over the 60, 60 years. Decade by decade, slowly, you can see this image of uh, this this male fantasy, fantasy evolve and shift and, and sort of shape. And in some ways, holding it up to the light like this, you know, putting it on centre stage, allowing us all to look at it and sort of see what's uh, appealing about it, but what's problematic about it, is sort of helping us sort of work out a better way to be. I mean, the difference between Ian Fleming's James Bond and Daniel Craig's James Bond it has come such a such a distance by that. Well, point. I, I was very I was very struck in the book when you talked about there's a bit in one of the Fleming books where he's got this sort of there's this sort of slightly nasty undertow of violence, and and he talks there was something there was a line that was something like the the sweet tang of or something like that. Oh, that's in um, Casino Royale, quite, yeah. Which is quite shock. Which is quite shocking, isn't it? Really, because you can't really. You, it's not a justifiable uh, phrase now at all, is it? In, in any, well, it wasn't then, but Fleming thought it was reasonable to write, and his publisher thought it was reasonable to sort of publish. It's a. It's one of those little markers that show that no, we have changed. We have come quite a long way, and there's a there's a. I mean, I get, the bits of Fleming that I quote in the book are for a lot of people quite shocking. They sort of know the Bond on the screen. They know Roger Moore and uh, or Timothy Dalton or something like that. So to, to hear Fleming's Bond in Fleming's world words, um, especially when he's talking about people like uh, Pussy Galore or um, when he's talking about um, lesbianism and um, 
talk about Korean people, Jesus. There's a, there's a lot of sort of subjects where you would just wince to read what he's, he's written now. It's, it's a real sort of time capsule. You know, I grew up with James Bond and it was always, like you say, it is an incredibly, there's something about it that is incredibly seductive. Mm. And, it, you know, is this amazing sort of male fantasy that you can, you know, you can fly a plane and you can, drive these amazing cars and you have these gadgets and you have these all these all these amazing women that, that kind of just fall for you it's a it's very very seductive i grew up with roger moore and this sort of very racist portrayal of people from india i think there's a moment in octopussy where roger moore throws a coin to one of the indian characters and he says yeah. that should keep you in curry yeah <laughs> i mean i'm laughing but it's it's kind of you know we've it's one of those things now where you see things in popular culture and you think that is just so passe, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it was about 20 years after um, Help, the Beatles film, which also had stereotypes of people from India in it. But the thing with Help was everyone in it was a stereotype. You know, the the um, the mad scientist was stereotyped, the sort of the, 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 the crazy uh, army generals were stereotyped, the Beatles were stereotyped. Um, the thing when you get to Octopussy and it's like the, the Indian people are stereotypes, but all the Westerners are like charming and sophisticated and, and things like that. It just makes it so much worse. It's the, it's the context of it all. is just so, so, so difficult to sort of watch now. There are some great anecdotes in the book. Is it, is it true that Fleming named the character Scaramanga, who's the bad guy in, in The Man with the Golden Gun, after somebody that he disliked at Eton? Yeah, I, there's a few like that. I think uh, Goldfinger uh, was one as well. Um, it seems to be, Eaton seems to have been full of these really hateable people with brilliant names, if Fleming is to, is to be believed. Uh, he does a lot of like using people's names, and usually it's in a, I'll, I'll turn this person into a villain, and that's how their name will be sort of known in the years to come, which is a it's a dangerous thing to do, surely. I mean, it's it's a cruel thing to do. It's a great way to get revenge, though, isn't it? Yeah, it used to be that the, the bard was feared because, you know, uh, a warrior could, um, you know, break your legs, but a bard could have your family name mocked for generations to come. You know, there's nothing more more um, uh, destroying of your honour than a bard who came up with a really brilliant poem about what an idiot you were. <laughs> Power to be used responsibly, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are some very interesting parallels uh, between F Fleming and uh, the Beatles, and one of them is that both Ian Fleming and John Lennon had these very dysfunctional uh, early years, which kind of marked them for life. Hmm. Uh, Fleming's father died in World War One. Was as we said, John Lennon had this terribly messy time in his early years with his his mum and his dad and going to live with Aunt Mimi and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you think that, uh, that um, do you think that they both had a sort of, uh, there was an edge of darkness in, in the writing of both of them? And I know they wrote different things, but do you think there's a bit of darkness in the way both of them wrote? Uh, well, there certainly was darkness in the way both of them wrote, definitely. And but that, that theme of um, damaged childhood, of, of of people not being raised by both parents in a nuclear family. It was so prevalent through all that, throughout all this. It, it started to sort of not disturb me after a bit, but it was a bit too much. It's basically everyone except for George Martin and George Harrison in the entire thing. 
I thought, sorry to interrupt, I thought that was really interesting because I didn't know when you said almost everybody associated with the Beatles had had a dysfunctional situation in childhood. I didn't know that. I knew about John Lennon. I knew about Paul McCartney losing his mum. But Ringo's dad buggers off and yeah. the other the others all had some sort of family dysfunction as well, didn't they? You know, Linda, Linda McCartney's mum died when she was a teenager. Yoko Ono um, didn't see her father for a couple of years. Alan Klein was put into an orphanage. Uh, Pete Best and Sue Sutcliffe both lost their parents in the war or were separated in the war. Um, part of it was the war. It was a lot more common to have family sort of destroyed at that point. But, um, you know, uh, Brian Epstein was raised by nannies. Um it's, it's just such a strange repeating thing. And there's a lot of, um, there's a, there's a lot of writing about what they call the eminent orphan syndrome in which, you know, high functioning people are, um, have this fet, you know, a bit too common in their background, but it's also the case that if you go to a prison, there's a lot of people in there who weren't raised by both parents, you know, it can knock people sort of both ways. Um, I, the way I see it is it's sort of, you know, knowledge of death of a parent, um, death being real like that that's kind of um an adult emotional sort of understanding um to have it as a child the child sort of has aspects of, of uh you know uh childhood and adulthood at the same time they're a little bit marked as different they're a little bit aside from everyone else um and it, i think that can lead to a lot of uh, artists and writers and uh, actors as well particularly a lot of actors who become someone else to get uh, get the appeal that they want, get the applause that they want. Um, it, it certainly does things to people, definitely. But they were both capable of being quite unpleasant as well, weren't they? I mean, I know, I, I mean, Lennon, Lennon is a very, as you say in the book, he's a very complicated character. He's a man of, he's, he's a man who talks about peace and love, but he's capable mm. of being violent. Um, and, you know, he could be quite cruel and unkind. And, and, um, Fleming also as well was very, you know, very sort of emotionally stunted and he was yeah. into masochism and stuff. So there was quite a, there's quite a similarity there between how they both behaved in some way. Yeah, and they were both sent away as a child and told it was for their own best, sent away from their parents to go live elsewhere and told it was, um, you know, for the best. Uh, and it is different to, say, Paul McCartney, whose mother died but he still had a, a father. He still had a brother. There was a family unit. It was a loving thing that he was part of. Um, he understood loss and grief and death. But the 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 act of being yeah sent away or being put into boarding school or or whatever does seem to be quite a wound that a lot of people have a great difficulty um, dealing with. I think the psychologists call it boarding school syndrome now, and it leads to people who never quite feel at home. Um, and th what's often referred to as homesicknessness is, is a lot deeper, a lot more problematic, and it's much, a lot closer to grief for these young people being being sent away. Yeah, and you know that's the that was the English establishment, and to a large extent, you know, still is these sort of very very sort of damaged, dysfunctional people. As I said earlier, there are some there are some great anecdotes that when the Beatles uh, made their their first film. A Hard Day's Night, you you put in a quote where Paul McCartney compared it unfavourably to James Bond and somebody said, mm. oh, do you like the film? And he said, well, it's all right. It's not as good as James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because you think that, you know, to be the Beatles, certainly 64, 65, um, achieved everything they could possibly hope to achieve. The creativity that's pouring out of them, the global success, they're just the most famous and loved people on the planet. And also the, they're so tight together, so it's such a great gang. Surely you think, what could be better than that? You know, that has to be the ultimate, you know, dream to be a Beatle in about, you know, 1965. But everyone needs this fan a fantasy. What's the only fantasy left for them was to be James Bond, which is, you know, why the next film, Help, was essentially a Bond spoof um, on, 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 you know, many levels to, to the extent of like chases in the Alps and, uh, you know, filming in the Bermuda for um, tax rather than plot reasons and, and, and all these things. It's, you know, everybody still needs, you know, uh, something to aspire to, which is which is the power of, of Bond, really. It's uh, it, it sort of taps into desire a lot. Yeah. yeah. But but also but also they're easy to parody, aren't they? Like you say, the Beatles second film is like mm. a bit like a Bond film. And then you then you um, then you talk. There's a really nice section where you talk about Peter Sellers in the casino royale which is just this complete <laughs> made me want to watch, it made me want to watch the film because your description was so vivid of this completely so uh, the last half hour is yeah yeah couldn't recommend then, but then more recently we've had austin powers so there's something about the bond fantasy because it's so overblown and it's so I mean, we love it, but it's so ridiculous that it makes yeah, it well, quite easy to parody. The, the thing that makes it harder than you'd think to parody is the fact that it's kind of self-aware and it's quite happy to sort of mock itself and not take itself too seriously. Um, the character of Q is important in this. He's the, he's the one person who doesn't think that, uh, that 007, you know, is, is anything but just an annoying sort of... Uh, he keeps pool. telling him off. Yeah. That, that's, Pay attention, that's, Bond. <laughs> <laughs> but you get you get things like in, in Goldfinger, there's a countdown on this missile in Fort Knox, and he stops it when the, the, count, the counter reads 007, and it gets a laugh out of the audience. And it's just a, a sort of a wink to the audience that we're not taking this seriously, you know. Uh, even before you get to the double-taking pigeon in, in Moonraker and, and things like that. It's, it's, um, it's, it's able to not take itself seriously and take itself seriously at the same time, which is a rare thing skill which is a rare and important skill and if it ever loses that i think it would be in real trouble going back to the going back to the, i could talk about I could talk, talk about james bond for ages yeah. going back to the, going back to the beatles that was great there was a really bit the bit that really made me laugh when i read it which was about when yoko comes on the scene and she's in the studio and john just kind of brings her into everything and it causes resentment in the band but the way but one of the worst things is she she takes some of the digestive biscuits. I mean, I just that that really that really made me laugh so much. I thought that was brilliant. Well, they were George's, weren't they? They were the McVitie's digestive biscuits in a tin, and she just didn't ask. She'd just take take his. And for George, you know, it just says a lot about George that he's very much the person who would not be happy about someone taking his biscuits without without asking but she was you know from such a privileged um background that um in in tokyo as a child you know her servants weren't allowed to uh, turn their backs on her they had to sort of leave the room backwards you know and that's she was sort of raised in that sort of way and you do behave differently in that the way um she just comes into the studio and sits there during the, the the white album sessions when you know friends and girlfriends and wives and things like that were not normally allowed there 
And she'd just be like sitting on an amp and and, and not feeling self-conscious about the fact that uh, this the, the relationship between these four men had suddenly been, you know, thrown a, in, in a and damaged in this in this weird sort of way. Um, it is very much that background that she comes from yeah. that sort of explains why she why she because most people would be like, God, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of the way here, I'll just be, be out the back. And, and I think you know, John was probably doing it for that reason to sort of uh, provoke provoke Paul a little bit and think and things like that but yeah it's such a it's such a real uh plot twist in the in the Beatles story the, the arrival of Yoko yeah, yeah, yeah. the story is so perfect in in any ways I mean the, obviously the music is amazing and we have the music and the music's all brilliant but there's also the story of those four, the story of those bands. And you, you just, the more you know about it, the more interesting it becomes. You, Did you, you read, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you read Craig Brown's book that came out yeah. last year. Yeah. And I, I, really, I, really, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was fantastic. I really enjoyed about 95% of it. Um, I, you know, and a lot of it's really well done and really funny and really well um, researched and he picks out these really good things. But then there's chapters where, it, like he goes to the National Trust properties and sort of looks down on the staff and sort of, you know. Oh yeah, that was staff. yeah, that was some. There were one or two on. He, there yeah. was some where he's at a conference and he's taking the piss out of one of the people that, that wants to talk to him. Yeah, and then and there's yeah. there's, bit, there's bits where he'll just go, oh here's some chapters about me in boarding school, and he just, oh, God's sake, he could have written. <laughs> about Billy Preston, he just completely ignores Billy Preston and things like that, but to write about himself at board until so there's, there's the, I'd, I'd still recommend it because as I say, 90% of it is so great, but it, it's it's from a certain perspective, from a from a certain background. What's your favorite Beatles album? White album, I think. But it is it is an amazing it is an amazing album because it's such like you say, like you like you write in the book, it's just this crazy. It's this crazy mixture. I played Revolution Number no. Nine to my kids in the car a few months ago, and it completely <laughs> freaked them out. And a lot of people go, "Well, they shouldn't have put that on the album." But it, it, the fact that it's an album that includes things like that just gives it this strange, sort of dark, mysterious vibe, for want of a better word, that just other albums don't have. It's the, the, the more it's got on it it still becomes more than the sum of its parts. Very odd album. It's, you know, the, the range of, uh, and variety of, of, of songs. Um, you know, there's about 30 songs, but they go from, you know, musical to like real, uh, you know, abstract experimentation, things like that. So, you know, full out rock and roll inventing heavy metal along the way and, yeah yeah helter skelter and yeah. beautiful things like blackbird, which is just yeah. Cool. yeah. And good night, a lullaby, you know, and, uh, Everything's on there, and that's what I mean. That's what's so astonishing about the Beatles is is every time they sat down to write a song, it was like, well, let's do something new, let's do something new, let's do something that need to keep pushing themselves, and the competition between them, that sort of you know, uh, you know, competition is one of those sort of um, masculine um, attributes that uh, this can be seen as a negative thing, but it can. In examples like this, be a really sort of positive thing. You can see the, the, them pushing each other to their creative heights, and it was that comp that need for competition that uh, led George Harrison come out with "All Things Must Pass," this massive and probably the greatest Beatles solo album. And uh, then when he's away from the rest of the Beatles, you know, he, he makes other records, but they're never quite as good. They're never quite up there with that one. 
Uh, final question on Bond and the Beatles. Do you think that people will still care about them in 30 or 40 years' time from now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of question marks about how um, how Bond is going to fit into the 21st century. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a, certainly a lot of people who think it's just not going to work anymore. You know, this, this, uh, this sort of white male uh, establishment assassin is just not what people want. And certainly the um, generations there are very little interest in it. And if you go to something like Comic-Con, you're not going to see people, you know, cosplaying as James Bond anymore. You know, it's, it's all lost that younger audience. It needs to sort of um, find it again, but it's all, People have been predicting its demise since about 1967. You know, the, every film that came out, there'd be a review going, yeah, yeah, a bit old hat, this, isn't it? You, you, you've probably done it a bit too much now, lads. You should probably knock it on the head. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit embarrassing now, lads. Had it all through the 70s, all through the 80s, all through the 90s, the, the noughts, you know, that constant sort of belief that, yeah, it's the end of it. But it, it doesn't stop. This is the whole thing. The notion of a... Uh, a film hero who would go on for 25 sequels over 60 years, which all make money, which are all massively successful, is utterly implausible. You know, it just doesn't happen. There's no other comparable, you know, film thing to it. So I certainly wouldn't uh, rule out betting on James Bond uh, based on its pasting. And I've got no doubt at all that in 30 years' time, you know, uh, young kids when they're learning guitar learning piano learning musical instruments will be learning Beatles songs because it is sort of folk music now it's just the music of the folk it's just it's just the music that's around it's so domestic you know we can't really imagine a world without Beatle music the as we get further away from the Beatles they just seem to get bigger and, and bigger. It's it's a really odd thing. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people used to talk about, you know, the Beatles and the Stones as if they were, you know, some way equivalent or equals or something like that. That's long since gone now. Now people talk about the Beatles and Shakespeare as defining things of, 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 of about Britain. Um, and the further we get, the more perspective on them that we get and just the uh, the more impressed we become, I think with what they did and, and what they happened. So, yeah, I've got 30 years' time, uh, 2015, I've got no doubt people will be listening to the Beatles still. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, John. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been talking to John Higgs about his book, Love and Let Die. It's out now in hardback from Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And uh, all your all, it's 22 quid, and it's all your good book retailers online and in person john absolute pleasure thank you so much uh really nice talking to you miles thanks a lot mate you have been listening to going underground presented by miles salter and produced by graham smith if you haven't already be sure to check out our website yourcalling.co.uk and why not head to your podcast platform of choice to hear more episodes of going underground or our sister podcast the five albums you'll hear in heaven until next time be well and happy listening.